0: Good evening. Welcome. I am your host, Maxwell, and tonight you are in for a special and spooky treat. This is Tales from the Reliquary. for the rest of this episode this is relics halloween special devoted to creepy tales of historical horror and archaeological mayhem on this dark and stormy night we are joined by five special ghouls from other like-minded podcasts who have come onto the show for bite-sized segments in an anthology of terror One of the best things about having special guests on the show is that they often come to the relic table with stories I've never heard of before. So imagine my surprise to hear about a potential lost treasure that's practically in my own backyard. That being said, I'm hesitant to grab my metal detector and shovel and go off looking for it. Courtney and Sasha from Spoop Hour are about to tell us why. Well, welcome ghoul friends.
1: Hello. <laughs> it's That was not it's... a spooky greeting. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi.
0: Hi. <laughs> this is the Relic Halloween special, Throw Convention Out the Window. This is not professional. Yay. This is not me doing my best Aaron Mankey, um, power <laughs> to him, lore impression. This is us having fun, because it's yay. Halloween, Ooh. and... Yes. So um, I'm joined for this segment of our ghoulish anthology. I said ghoul already. I can't do that again. Our spooky (laughs) anthology. Our
1: kind of like spectacular, our unbelievable. A couple years ago, our conference fell on Halloween, and I was like, I got to come up with some puns to post on social media. So it was a a lot of unbelievable and spooktacular (laughs) things. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a very professional professional.
0: Spoop hour, everyone, Sasha and Courtney. Howdy
2: Howdy I'm Sasha I'm Courtney <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we suddenly Courtney. have forgotten how to podcast <laughs> how, does, how do we podcast? What, what is We're sounds? um Spoop Hour a Paranormal Comedy Podcast We
1: are both Halloweenies We're terrified of literally everything and yet we talk about spooky and nervously laugh
0: Ah, uh, So talk to me about something scary
1: No Yes
0: Alright This has been we Spoop is. Hour this Thank you been... On to the next guest <laughs>
1: Alright, so we are going to be talking about Charles Island to spook you out today. It's going to be real spoopy. Hope you're excited. If you're wondering what Charles Island is, it is a 14-acre island off the coast of Milford, Connecticut.
0: Shut up. Do you know where I live? We
1: know exactly where <laughs> you live. Know, we know
2: where you live. We're
1: in fact in your house right now. You actually also know where we live. That's true. We put our
2: return address. You might
1: know my last name. I can't remember I told you. I'll tell you it off air. You deserve to know. It's fine. <laughs>
0: I found out Sasha's the other night, and whenever I found out a podcaster's last name, it feels kind of like knowing the doctor's name from Doctor Who. It's like, ooh.
1: Oh, uh, yes. yeah. It's like, ooh. ooh. Yeah. You're going to flip know. your lid because you'll hear mine. It'll it'll blow your mind call.
0: I've definitely mentioned this on this season so far, but um, I live in Connecticut. I don't live that far from mm-hmm. Milford. It's very close.
1: Yes. You should check it out. And we're going to go into why. <laughs> so. Do, 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 do. It was settled, but let's be real, it was colonized by the English in 1640. Charles Island quickly earned a spooky moniker. Thrice Cursed Island. Hmm. It started when the Paugaset, the local tribe, lost the land to European settlers. Unsurprisingly, they did not love this. was not their favorite thing. It varies from legend to legend as to why they didn't love it. In one, it's because the Pougasit people believed the island was sacred and a home to their spirits. In another, it's because white people kidnapped the chief's daughter. And the final theory is what has my bet for being the correct one. They were just upset because they had lost their home to white people who were like, we discovered this land where people were already living. (laughs) Which is not fun. No one likes it. (laughs) Regardless, in 1639, the Pougasset chief cursed the land, dooming any structure that was built there and anyone who tried to live on it. In a way, the curse succeeded. Early colonists tried and failed to grow tobacco on the island, and it is now a designated natural area preserve for herons and egrets. So now we're going to bounce over to Sasha for the second curse. I just want to say, good for those birds. Right? They have a nice home. They do have (laughs) a nice home. Good job, birds. I like to think that the birds will poop on anyone who is descendant from the colonizers, (laughs) but that's just me. All
2: right, so um, during the final voyage in 1699, um, notorious Scottish pirate captain William Kidd, allegedly the inspiration for Treasure Island, may have made a quick stop at Charles Island. He had already buried some of his booty on Gardner Island in New York, but being the seasoned pirate that he was, he probably wanted to spread his treasure around to minimize loss if anyone were to find it. And to be extra safe, he cursed the ground where he buried the treasure. Captain Kidd was then lured into a trap that ultimately led to his execution in 1701. But... What about the treasure? What about the treasure? What about the treasure? After Captain Kidd's visit, the local townspeople got wise to the pirates' game and went to the beach. After all, they reasoned, wh- what else could he be doing but burying booty? And burying booty, am I right? <laughs> what else can pirates do,
1: am I right, ladies? They're like, walk my plank, shiver my timbers,
2: bury my booty. <laughs> so they dug and dug one night, but right as they... Right as they uncovered an iron chest, the figure of a headless man appeared out of nowhere. The townspeople noped away, but they watched the figure jump into their treasure hole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I bet they they did.
2: (laughs) And then they saw blue flames explode out of it. Yo.
0: Right?
2: Right? But having not learned their lesson, because these are simple folk. <laughs> they... <laughs> no offense, Maxwell. We're we'll assuming you're among them. You live near there. It's like what, what, <laughs> what could, like, what could possibly... We saw blue flames. What could possibly go wrong Seems if we fine. just, you know, go back? Yeah. Um, they went to try to uncover their treasure the very next day. But to their surprise, their shovels, spades, and picks had vanished, and the ground was undisturbed. Dun-dun-dun! It's very spooky. <laughs> Since then, treasure hunters have flocked to Charles Island to try and find the wayward treasure, but with no luck. They have reported mysterious figures in the trees, glowing ghosts, and disembodied voices, as well Ooh. as weird sounds.
1: Dun, 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 dun. And now the third and final curse, because remember, it's a thrice-cursed island, not a twice-cursed island. Not twice-cooked pork. More curse for your money, because <laughs> you work hard for it, honey. It happened both before and after the second curse did. Mm -hmm. Cuauhtémoc was a 16th century Aztec ruler. He was the successor to Montezuma, and Cuauhtémoc, accordingly, had a large quantity of treasure when he was captured by the Spanish in 1521. While originally Hernán Cortés respected Cuauhtémoc for his bravery in battle, that respect turned to torture, because Cortés was like, hold up, I just looked at your booty, This is not the booty I was expecting. You're holding out on me, friendo. (laughs) Booty.
2: (laughs) This is not the booty we're
1: looking for. This is not the booty I thought I was going to get tonight. And Cuauhtémoc was like, I'm not talking. You can do what you want to me. And that's what Cortez did. He tortured him until Cuauhtémoc eventually died. And Cuauhtémoc took the secret locale of the rest of his treasure to his grave. So right Hmm. off the bat, maybe some bad juju on this treasure. Yeah, well, it's just to
0: see how we get from Mexico to Connecticut. Connecticut, Connecticut. Fun fact: (laughs) to to some of our international listeners, who, (laughs) well, if you're an international listener, chances are you probably know more about geography than us Americans. Yeah, true. Mexico and Connecticut, not at all close. (laughs) Mm -mm. Well,
1: in 1721, a group of five Connecticut sailors stumbled across what is believed to be the lost treasure of Cuauhtémoc in a cave in Mexico. The sailors couldn't believe their luck, so they snapped it up and returned home with it. But four out of five sailors agree this treasure was going to make them die. Seriously, four out of five of them died (laughs) shortly after finding the treasure. So there was a series of disasters that befell them. Only one man survived. And this final sailor dumped his loot on Charles Island, where he buried it. And in so doing, transferred that bad energy into the land. Although there are versions of this story where the sailors themselves cursed the island kind of the way Captain Kidd did to protect mm-hmm. their treasure. So they buried their treasure, and they were like, anybody who touches this is gonna get in big trouble, y'all. And then...
2: But ultimately, it was cursed for a third time. And that's
1: the legend of Thrice Cursed Island. Now you gotta go over there and try to find this Thrice Cursed treasure. We'll wait. Go, go find that booty, <laughs> Maxwell. In the middle of the night. swiggity sweetie. Oh. He's go- going for that booty. <laughs>
0: Aren't I always? Okay, so, so first thing, and I'm not going to elaborate on it, but Sasha, Kingdom Hearts yeah. 2, the yes. heartless boss for Pirates of the Caribbean world with the, with the Aztec gold. That's yes. all that's going through my head right now.
2: Right, yeah. <laughs> that's all I'm seeing.
0: Yeah. You no, I got you.
2: Me.
1: Yeah, I um, got you.
0: Second. <laughs> I'll
2: explain later. Okay, thank you.
0: All right, <laughs> so one of my favorite things just ever is learning about something spooky I didn't know before. Mm-hmm. E- and even better if it's related to somewhere where I grew up. So, what you just did right now, like, this is, I had no idea you were doing this. I had never even heard of this before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get, so my first thought was, I'm going to go, that's what I'm doing this October. I'm going to go to this haunted island. I'm going to fatal yep. frame that up. But yeah. <laughs> when you said it's a uh, protected heron uh, reservation, that mm-hmm. makes me think you probably there is no public access because there is a, another scary place in Connecticut called oh. Dudley Town, which is an abandoned ghost town in the middle of the forest Ooh. that rests on state land, similar to a preserve. Oh. Um, I think there's just foundations there now, but it's super haunted. It's very creepy. Mm-hmm uh it's not really in the wheelhouse of relics so i'm probably not going to get into it that much but i would encourage listeners or you guys to you know look it up it's creepy but it's interesting to me that that is notorious for being cursed and it's um on protected land and then this island is on protected land it's almost as if the government of connecticut is like we don't want anyone to go there
1: yeah, you ready right. for me to blow your mind? Uh-oh, uh-oh. You can go there. What? But they say don't bring your pickaxe on <laughs> it's like the the website that I am using, which has a bad word in its name, so I won't say it. <laughs> but it says leave your pickaxe at home. It's the grounds of Silver Sands State Park. So it falls in the realm of that park, which is public land. So they have bluefish and snapper... And uh, this oh, this person hasn't found anything. Oh, you do have to be careful. They have what they refer to as a rock bar. Basically, during low tide, you can basically walk to the island from the mainland. But when high tide comes in, that goes away, which can lead you to getting swept away and adding a fourth curse. And I don't know how to say fourth curse in thrice-cursed terms. <laughs> so that
0: would be bad. Quatro.
1: Quattro Cursed cursed Island Island. does not have
2: the same ring to it.
0: Or worse, you get stuck on the Cursed Island and have to stay there overnight.
2: Oh, no. that's that's where my head went, where I was like, oh, no, then you're trapped on the island with all the The ghosts, ghosts and spirits.
1: This is why we're good podcast co-hosts, (laughs) because you're like, oh, no, ghosts and spirits. I'm like, oh, no, drowning. (laughs) (laughs) What could be worse than drowning? Becoming a ghost.
0: (laughs) I'm going to check it out. Do it.
2: Take
1: pictures. If you see a heron, ask it if it knows where the treasure is. (laughs) And it's going to pretend like it doesn't understand you, but it does. So watch where it flies next.
0: Interesting. (laughs) Well, guys, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. I've never heard of this before, so I'm really stoked.
1: We are at
2: Spoop Hour on Twitter and Instagram. Spoop is spelled with a P, not a K. Yes. P is in Penguin. Not K as in kangaroo. Yes.
1: and Or night. Might. (laughs) If you have a spooky story of your own, if you've been to Charles Island and you saw the spooky headless figure in blue flames when you were treasure hunting, go ahead and email spoophour at gmail.com. We love getting spooky stories and we will read it on the air. We're also on basically all the podcatchers at this point. iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, you name it, we're probably there. So check us out. And yeah. thank you, Maxwell, for having us on. This is really
2: fun. We, we like talking to you. We love talking we to you. We appreciate it. It brings you. us such
1: joy.
0: <laughs> thank you so much and have a happy Halloween.
3: Happy
2: oh, Halloween. Oh,
3: oh, oh, oh.
0: This season of Relic focuses on crime in the art and artifact world. And one of the subjects I'll be discussing in greater detail is forgery. There is no shortage of con men in the art world. But this real-life story from Brock over at Cocktail Party Massacre is about a deception of an entirely different variety, involving a beloved painter who is no stranger to the macabre and bizarre. Oh, and there is, of course, just the slightest dash of the occult to make this recent incident all the more… surreal… Alright, so today I am joined, and I'm very excited by the way, because this is like one of my new favorite podcasts. I'm joined by um, Brock from Cocktail Party Massacre.
4: Hello there, how are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. So yeah, your podcast is, in, is new on my radar, but I'm already in love. Um, it's like a combination of a cocktail, if you will, of so many things I'm a fan of, camp horror really good podcast album cover art (laughs) um a dog it's great oh thank you uh uh, but but i don't want to speak for you can you tell uh the relic audience a little bit about what you're about and your co-host as well who sadly is not here
4: yeah yeah so uh cocktail party massacre like you said is a mixture of trivia uh, cocktails, and of course, it's all centered around horror. I have a co-host named Pickens. Uh, he lives uh, he lives quite a bit away from me, so we don't get together often unless we're recording for the podcast and doing podcast related things. Unfortunately, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a great time, and uh, we just released a Sleep Camp episode. And I will say this: I love your podcast, but Aww. I am not. I am not a, uh, an expert on, on this subject matter, but when we were talking about this, you know, I'm, I spent a lot of time watching horror and, and thinking about horror, but when I started thinking about treasure and things of that nature, uh, something very specific came to mind, and, and so that's why I'm here with you today.
0: Well, I'm not an expert either, but I just do it anyway. You sound like an expert. <laughs> so what are you talking about today?
4: Well, I'm talking about uh, various uh, Salvador Dali-related treasure experiences and and kind of intrigues and this and that. And by the way, uh, full disclosure, I, I am not an expert. I'm not an art historian. So I hope I do not like tarnish the reputation of your podcast by mucking things up.
0: No, trust me. I'm usually the one who mucks things up anyway. Um, Salvador Dali is one of my favorite artists from a very young age. I knew I was going to be weird from a young age because I really liked his paintings. Um, surrealist. Um, there's a lot of great stuff that he's done. But this story is interesting because, from what I understand, it has to do with uh, his posthumous career, shall we say? That Maybe? is
4: that is correct. Alright, again. Well, there's a long history of Dali and Dali frauds and and so on. I mean, there was a case back in the mid-70s before you and I were born where apparently he was hired to do the artwork for a tarot deck and there were all kinds of things that went on and basically he pulled out of that agreement but instead what he did is he uh signed his name to a bunch of like blank sheets of paper and another artist came in and did the art so there were all these fake tarot cards uh, being circulated that had a signature on it but lo and behold it it was not his artwork um and even and his like artwork has been faked so often in i believe in the um 80s or 90s for example uh it was found out that a whole circulation of art pieces that were fake went to auction, and just the fact that they were fake Dalis made them sellable in a strange sense. So there's this whole long history of uh, Dali and Dali, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, fake art. Um, and uh, But the coolest thing is, and this kind of goes back to the whole tarot card thing, is that last year – His body was exhumed, and his body was exhumed. So he is, in a sense, the buried treasure of this story, right? Um, But his body was exhumed because, and this goes back to the tarot card thing, a tarot card reader uh, was claiming that he was her father and that uh, she had rights to um, his, his money, essentially. So, yeah.
0: Um, was she the tarot card reader who was involved originally in the um, Dolly Tarot deck that never came to fruition, or is this completely unrelated? I,
4: I think it is unrelated. I think it's unrelated. Um, but okay, so it, it's interesting too because you know he has his signature mustache mm-hmm. in, in the in the articles that I was reading about when he was exhumed, his signature mustache was fully intact. Um, So that had to be kind of creepy to see. I guess, you know, the hair does last longer. See, this all goes back to my obsession with horror. I mean, his work, his surreal work is kind of horrific and beautiful all at once. Um, So it makes sense that this would kind of be appealing to me. But I don't think that the tarot card reader, I don't think that it was related to the deck that he was supposed to do the art for in the 70s. Um, The name of the tarot card reader is uh, Pilar Abel, and um, she's 61, and she alleged that Dali had an affair with her mother back in the 50s. Um, And I guess the most important reveal of the story is that it turns out that she shares no genetic information. She, she's not. She's not. She's not his daughter. So that's that was the big reveal.
0: So like, this is weird to me because I actually. Um, I went to school with the son and by association of all the schools in my area being connected, two of the sons of one of Dolly's models, who is apparently a really cool, kind of eccentric um, woman herself. And when they told me, I initially didn't believe them until I Googled her name and there she was at like a Dolly retrospective. So like when this whole rumor came out, which I think Dolly was known as somewhat of a philanderer, I know he was a big fan of his wife because she uh, appears a lot in uh, oh, his work. Oh yes, artwork.
4: I think they were probably both pretty open. I'm not positive, but they seem like they could have been swingers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> please don't please don't at me Twitter. Uh, yeah, no, so something like that. I could conceive of actually taking place like there being an illegitimate i shouldn't say illegitimate a dolly air that people didn't know about um i'm still kind of stuck on the tarot thing because tarot is really cool for me oh yeah and um i don't know so the fact that he signed his name on all of these works but didn't actually paint them was that sort of a cash grab um strategy of his or did that just open like the floodgates for forgery
4: Yes, I think both. I mean, I think he must have gotten something out of it for him to have signed his name to blank sheets of paper so that someone else could come in and do the work um but but I think the answer to both of those t- questions is yes um but again, I feel bad. I don't know all the details, but I just thought that was a really badass story that that yeah that that it happened and it came out afterward um but going back to Pilar. It must have been a plausible story. Otherwise, I don't think they would have gone to the 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 length of exhuming him um, to test his DNA.
0: Did she claim to, like, see his ghost or anything like spooky? Because that's where I thought we were heading here when she said that she was a tarot card reader.
4: Um, no, I really just think that uh, I think her mother told her the story. Or, you know, she could have made it all up, but I, I, I think whether she made it up or not, it was essentially that that uh it was told to her and passed down to her that again, and it would be totally believable that Dali and her mother kinda, you know, did the mumbo. <laughs> or I guess I guess in Spain, what would it be? It would be um Damn it. What is the name of that dance? (laughs) You have to edit this part out. The Lambada? Well, I was thinking what the flamenco. 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 Yeah.
0: The Melting Watch flamenco. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm surprised he never actually did a horror movie or artwork for a horror movie. Or if he has, it must be very obscure. I know he was involved with the first production of Dune. Mm-hmm. The movie, the first adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune never came to fruition, but what's interesting is, have you ever seen um, any of the Fantasia Disney movies? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. He was originally supposed to do a segment or something for that, and it like lingered in just like limbo for years and years after his death, and they finally completed it. Um, for like the most recent uh, iteration of Fantasia, it's called uh, Destino, okay. and it's it's basically one of his paintings like come to life, animated. And I think you could just Google it on YouTube, and you could find it. But um, it just it sucks that he did such cool stuff that could have been in so many mediums mm. and a lot of it just would fail projects because he was kind of impulsive like that
4: so yeah. he never
0: really followed through which like uh relatable but yeah
4: you know the artist um. mentality you know it's like uh blinky light syndrome you know you get distracted very easily by blinky lights right um but there is kind of there is a tie slightly to horror in that if you've ever seen the movie the descent There is that amazing poster with the women who are uh, positioned in such a way that they resemble a skull. And that is directly from his art. So that's pretty badass.
0: That is pretty cool. All right. Any final thoughts and where listeners of Relic can find your really awesome podcast?
4: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, it's Cocktail Party Massacre wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're CPM Horror Pod on Twitter. And we're Cocktail Party Massacre on Instagram and on Facebook. And keep up the good work, Maxwell. I love it.
0: Oh, thank you. All right. Well, happy Halloween.
4: Happy Halloween. See you later.
0: You may recall last year when I was joined by Hillbilly Horror Podcast for our Halloween special to discuss potentially cursed lost artifacts, and if you haven't, then you need to give that episode a listen. Well, the artifact in this next story isn't lost. In fact, you can go and visit it for yourself. But after hearing what Noah from Faux Fright has to tell us about it, you might just have second thoughts. okay welcome back everyone uh i am joined by noah logan of faux fright podcast to talk to us about another creepy historical happening uh noah introduce yourself
5: hey there like uh like you said i'm noah i am the host of faux fright it's a Little podcasts where I like to explore hauntings and history all at the same time. I'm a historian; it's my day job, so I like it a lot. And I also like to scare the crap out of myself for some reason. All of the stories I tell scare the crap out of me. By the way, absolutely none of them I have a steel stomach for.
0: I think that's like the funniest thing about your podcast is that. Um, which there is other podcasters I know, like Spoop Hour. It comes from the same sort of viewpoint where it's like. We love to talk about this, but it also terrifies us. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, it's, you're, it's very Ichabod Crane. <laughs> yeah, girl. yeah. Um, so you're taking us down south to th- yeah. this one. And you are from Savannah, Georgia, which is incredibly beautiful and spooky, which is right. my aesthetic. Um, but I think you're taking us a little bit further for this, if I have my I geography am. correct. Okay.
5: I'm taking us all the way down to Key West, Florida. Ooh, Key Lime
0: Pie territory.
5: Yeah, which, you know, I went to Key West once and I had Key Lime Pie there and I didn't like it, which is a shame. Well, you can turn
0: off this podcast right now (laughs) because
5: I can't talk to you. Cut it off. We're done Uh. here. (laughs) No, I'll forgive you. Okay. Tell us some scary things. Okay, so I'm actually here to talk to you today about Robert the Doll. Have you heard of Robert the Doll? I
0: have, but... um... I find that I've heard it and I have heard a couple of variations on the story. Full disclosure, I, I hear different accounts each time.
5: Mm-hmm. We're going to so, talk about a couple of them.
0: So that excites me because it's kind of like um, uh, sort of a potluck of the the same story. Everyone brings like, you know, you bring the green bean salad, but everyone Mm -hmm. has a different, or green bean casserole, but everyone has a different sort of green bean casserole. Mm -hmm. You can always like sort of gravitate to your favorite. So um, let's indulge in your scary green bean casserole story. (laughs) Please start talking so I can stop talking.
5: Okay, cool. So um, you may have actually seen the 2015 movie, Robert the doll, Um, It's a horror movie, and it's actually based off of the real-life Robert the Doll story. I'm going to go into it a little bit. So what we know about Robert the Doll is he originally belonged to a guy named Robert Eugene Otto. Um, He also went by Gene. So for the sake of this story, I'm going to refer to the human as Gene because he also named the doll after himself as Robert. So as to not get confused, the doll is Robert and the human is Gene. So there's a couple of different stories about how Jean ended up with Robert. Um, One of them is that a woman or a young girl of um, what is described as Bahamian descent, which is to imply that she is black, right, um, actually gave him this doll after having an interaction with him that ended poorly and that she cursed the doll before giving it to him and that he's kind of like a voodoo type doll. Um, that's a pretty widely discredited story. Uh, first and foremost, it's kind of rooted in some of that exoticism I've already talked about in my podcast where it's like kind of low-key racism, you know? Um, so I don't really like to indulge those types of stories. We do know it was actually made by a doll company. It wasn't made by an individual in his life. It was made by the Stife Company. And, um, the, Interesting. I'm not sure if, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a German company.
0: You are. And I can, and I hate to interject and like do a me, me, me moment, but I used to work, um, at FAO Shorts in its original incarnation. I, I know it's coming back. Um, mm-hmm. it's actually gonna be opening soon again, which is great. But, um, Steiff was one of their original... Um, so it's kind of like a toy bazaar. So there, there are different markets there. Stife was one of their original clients and remained one of their clients well into the um, the closing in 2015 of the store. So they were the ones who helped make the teddy the teddy bear fra- from Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. They're a famous doll company, and they're known for doing very lifelike um, and very well handmade dolls. I did not know this was Stife that created it. So yep, that's really interesting.
5: Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know it's funny that you bring up that they make good lifelike dolls. That was the next thing I was going to say about Robert the doll, is that now I mean he's a little worn now. However, he has um, a sort of disturbing, almost too lifelike face for a doll, and that's kind of one of the scariest things about him. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his face as well. So when His grandmother, so it was Gene's grandmother who gave him the doll. His grandmother gave him the doll, and he named him Robert after himself, which I guess he was kind of arrogant, or kind of like naming a kid after yourself, right? And he loved this doll so much. I mean, he took it with him everywhere. And pretty soon after he got the doll, he started telling his parents that him and Robert would have conversations. And that's pretty normal for a little kid talking about their toys but the strange thing is his parents would be like sitting in the living room or outside of his bedroom and they would hear him having a conversation seem like with himself but in two different voices oh no yeah that's that's a big nope that's why i'm not having kids okay they're ghost magnets all right they're absolute ghost magnets Um, So they started hearing him having conversations in two different voices. And that was kind of unnerving, but it's not unlike kids to give their toys voices. So they didn't really think much about it until stranger things started happening. Um, One night.
0: The phenomenon, not the TV show, right?
5: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the one night, his parents um, heard him scream. So they ran into his bedroom and they came in and all of his furniture was overturned and Robert the doll was sitting on the end of the bed and almost looked like he was glaring at Jean. and Jean mm-hmm. swore that Robert and his friends has, had turned his furniture over inside of his room. And there were some attempts to get rid of the doll, that's what the lore says, there was attempts to get rid of the doll, but Robert just kept showing up. And as Gene got older, he actually decided to keep him, he actually decided to keep the doll into adulthood. And he actually married a woman um, as he got older, he got older and married this woman named Annette Parker, this was in the 1930s. And she died just two years later. Now, there's a lot of rumors surrounding her death. It was a kind of mysterious, sudden-onset death. Um, it's also n- noted that people in the community knew that Annette did not like Robert the doll. And well, yeah, wanted... her
0: husband is playing with a doll well yeah. into married age.
5: A very I creepy doll, mind you. Um, and so another thing about Robert the doll is he's also wearing a little sailor's outfit, um, Which somehow
0: I, makes it worse.
5: Yeah, it does. And we don't think that it is—I say we like I'm talking about more than one person here. Um, but uh, it's not thought that the Stife Company put that outfit on Robert. Uh, people think that it's actually a outfit that um, that Gene had as a child that he put on the doll himself. So it, it's believed that that doll has one of Gene's outfits on so it's this kind of creepy looking doll with a little sailor outfit it's just super super unnerving so anyway um he lived in Key West into adulthood after um he did some studying he studied art in Paris for a little while um and then after his wife died he actually didn't remarry again um I highly doubt he was a hit with the ladies because as soon as he brought them home They encountered Robert because he and this is Robert, yeah, yeah. It's it's very creepy. He sort of had a obsessive, sort of unhealthy relationship with this doll. Um, People would also say that if they would visit Gene and say something unfavorable or make fun of or pick at uh, Gene, that Robert's facial expression would change. Like, the doll would frown or grimace at them, and they would real-time watch the doll's facial expression change, which is terrifying. I would never visit somebody again if their doll frowned at me while I was there. So, um, after he died, after Gene died, the home that he was living in was sold to a woman named Myrtle Reuter, and... She actually kept the property and the doll for the next couple of decades. Um, I don't know a lot about her experiences with the doll. It's mostly just what we know about Jean. But what we do know now is in the mid-90s, that doll was donated to the East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida. And it's actually still there today. And so here's where the really interesting stuff comes in. So they keep Robert in a glass case... Uh, They take him out every couple of months to clean him and, you know, keep him upkept. However, tons of people constantly come to visit this doll. And what they do is you go and you have to ask Robert for his permission to photograph or video him. And I don't know how people know if he answers or not, but that's what everybody does. Another interesting thing that you'll note if you go to visit Robert at the East Martello Museum is that he has notes plastered all over his glass. And these are notes written from people who did not ask permission to photograph or videotape him or maybe made fun of him or discredited him while they were at the museum. And then after they left, bad things started happening in their lives and it is believed that Robert curses those who do not respect him, ask him for ask him for permission to videotape or photograph him or make fun of him, and that he makes bad things happen. So people actually write to the East Martello Museum. I mean, they get thousands of letters a year asking Robert to please lift the curse and that they're very sorry for disrespecting him. Um, his caretaker is one of the women who works at the museum, and she says that she doesn't know if Robert is haunted or not. She doesn't have really an opinion on it one way or the other. She just kind of sees it like she's doing her job and she just has a task to complete. And she respects Robert as an artifact, which is kind of just respecting Robert in general, right? So I don't think Robert would want to mess with her anyway.
0: Of course, you don't want to bite the hand
5: that feeds you. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, he she's the one keeping him well and good, um, so he's really, really popular. He's supposed to be the most haunted doll in the world. I mean, that's his, like, claim to fame is that there's no other doll that seemed to have as much influence as him. And, and, you know, it's it's interesting that so many people are so convinced that Robert has had a hand in their lives, that they are handwriting letters to the East Martello Museum and coming from all over the world to see this doll and ask him for photographs. I I have tons of friends who have gone to see him actually, and they ask for photographs and take selfies and none of them have had anything bad happen to them. And they believe it's because they asked permission to do that. Now, as far as what is haunting Robert, like where did Robert get a ghost? Nobody really knows. Um, There are some theories that because of the kind of malevolent nature of some of his actions, if you do not respect him, that Robert might possibly be a demon. Which is horrifying to think about, that a demon was in a children's stall. But again, nobody knows where that came from either. Um, there are some rumors that... Gene... I mean, how?
0: But, you know. Yeah,
5: well, yeah, for sure. But where? <laughs> yeah, but how? There are some rumors that Gene's grandmother may have been involved in witchcraft in some capacity and may have attracted a spirit to that doll accidentally or maybe even purposefully before giving it to gene so (laughs) robert's just really terrifying and i would not want to mess with him at all i don't i don't like old dolls and stuff like that like when i go into goodwill i call goodwill the emporium of things that may or may not be haunted i don't really like (laughs) to fuck with that stuff
0: (laughs) nope
5: yeah so, yeah, that's Robert the doll.
0: Um, Well, first of all, I don't like it. Second of all, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The, and there's just, there seems to be a cadre of haunted dolls, like, all over the world. Mm-hmm. I'm learning these days in my late night, why am I doing this at 12 a.m.? This is a terrible idea. Wikipedia right. searches. The YouTube and, hole. Uh, yeah, a wiki hole, YouTube hole, what have you. Um, And... I, I always just, like, wonder, like, why, like, what is it about a doll that, like, causes them to become, like, self-possessed by these entities? Um, and, you know, in my weird theorizing, I think it's a lot like the Golem, which is, an ep- I did an episode on the Golem of Frog. Mm-hmm. I think that when you create something uh, that's so lifelike that, and you put energy into it, it gives it its own form. That makes it half-human. Now, whether or not that's a demon, whether or not that's this kind of, like, kind of, like, half, like, created entity, I mean, I can't say for sure, but um, I definitely think that there's a little bit of crossover in Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, that very old, old... um, old legend of you know you you play god and this is what happens you get a monster you try to create like something that's an imitation of humanity but isn't Mm. human and you're gonna you're gonna get problems so yeah i i wonder what is what is robert like the actual entity inside it is it is it a demon that was conjured is it something kind of like a golem where you know so much like energy and like spiritual, like, goo was poured into this thing that it became self-aware? Or are we all just convinced it's haunted because we know the story and we've actually kind of created that reality through our collective unconscious?
5: Yeah, it's hard to tell. And, you know, I think a lot about um, dolls in particular and hauntings and dolls. And when you look at it, I mean, children seem to be the ones that are the most like theoretically the most sensitive to spirits, right? right? And so I wonder if that might have something to do with it as well, that if there are spirits that are trying to communicate with the living world, they're going to do something that makes them more likely to be heard. And for communicating with a child, what better way to do that than through a toy, right? Exactly. It's the perfect conduit. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, um, well, any final thoughts?
5: Um, just that I have actually never visited Robert myself. Probably a good idea. I don't think I ever will, honest to God. Um, but if you want to, he's down at the East Martella Museum uh, in Key West, Florida. And if anybody does go and see him, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I would love to hear from you actually or if you've if you've seen him before like definitely like let us know about how that went or if you felt like he was haunted or anything because i definitely want to hear about it i love hearing about other people's stories but i ain't trying to create one of my own i gotta be honest with you
0: yeah i always say uh same question i'll propose to the audience because it sure as hell isn't going to be me mm-hmm. um noah thank you so much for coming on the show do you yeah. want to plug anything where can people find you
5: Um, So the best way to find me is probably just on any of your podcast apps. I'm available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. It's Faux Fright, and that's F-A-U-X Fright. Um, You can also follow me on Twitter at that same, I think it's just at Faux Fright. I try my best to keep up with social media, but I'm so bad at it. But that's where I do most of my promotional stuff and talk about what's happening next on my podcast. If you want to check it out, that would be greatly appreciated. I'm still pretty new. I'm still getting my feet off the ground, but I'm having a great time so far. And uh, thank you for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. um, And you're a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much. I'm sure you will be on again. Uh, Have a happy Halloween. You as well. The sea is as vast and deep as the sheer amount of tales that come from humankind's interaction with the ocean. Stories of ghost ships are a unique genre, told by sailors to both pass the time as well as remind crews of ships that the open ocean is often a dangerous and deeply mysterious place. Courtney from Cult of Domesticity is here to talk to me about one of the most famous ghost ship cases of all time, a mystery that has stumped and frightened generations and is still nowhere close to being solved. Or is it? All right, so now moving on to old uh, ghoul friends, um, Courtney. Yeah. Courtney, who has been here, a different Courtney than... This is. We're gonna call this podcast "My Favorite Courtney's." This is a different Courtney than the one that you heard at the beginning. Oh
6: my of the god! Podcast. Great podcast. Yes, my favorite.
0: Courtney. My favorite Courtney. <laughs> it's just gonna be. It's gonna be a crossover between Cult of Domesticity, which is yours, and Spoop Hour. So it's gonna be you and then Courtney from Spoop Hour. Um, yes, and then we'll probably we need to find a third Courtney just to have that like power of three.
6: <laughs> Although I have been told. I worked at a restaurant where there were three Courtney's, and I was told I was the least, <laughs> least Courtney that they've ever met by some people, and I was like, I've never met this many Courtney's in my life, so I'm a little scarred and traumatized and confused. That
0: should be on your epitaph in a million years when you're six feet under. It should say the least, <laughs> least Courtney. All right, least Yes, Courtney, uh, what are you actually? No, I'm not even gonna do the pretense thing. I know what you're telling me about today. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, this is an old favorite. But then when I got on to this little G chat with you, you were like, oh, but this time I actually know how it happened. I know how it went down. Mm-hmm. I know how the mystery is solved. And I'm like, intrigued because I, there's a lot of people who, this is a big one. Um, let's not leave the audience in suspense any longer. Tell me what scary thing... The
6: ghost ship of uh, the Mary Celeste, which I realize now sounds like an old stripper name.
0: (laughs) I was thinking something else, but we're going to leave that at the end of this uh, segment because I've got something prepared and I'm sitting on it and I'm so gleefully excited about it. But we're going to save that for the end.
6: Uh, First, we should mention that there is an old movie... With uh, I forget which you who you how you described the actor. So I Bella thought Lugosi. it was
0: I thought it was Sean Connery, and then <laughs> I was like, it's Sean Connery or someone of like a Sean Connery flavor. And you said, oh, it's Bella Lugosi, and I said, ah, yes, spooky Sean Connery.
6: We should have just an episode where we recap the movie Phantom Ship, oh. which is a movie on the Mary Celeste with spooky Sean Connery. You'd probably get other courtney involved too
0: yes oh that would be a fun crossover event so why is the mary celeste why is it such a famous mystery
6: let's let's go back before it was the mary celeste because she had several names
0: oh she got around yeah a lot but she was also a ship so that's that's what they do standard standard operating procedure
6: yeah, they float around, go up a lot of places. So the Mary Celeste was built in Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia. So on your coast, not my coast. And was under the British registration as the Amazon in 1861. She became American in 1868, where she got a new name. Basically sailed around for about four or five years until 1872. But the real thing to get the name Mary Celeste was in October of 1867 at Cape Breton Island. The Amazon, AKA Mary Celeste was driven ashore and damaged that she got classified as a wreck. Now policy is you assess the damage, tow it somewhere, fix it up, resell it, sell it for parts, whatever, you know, recycle. Right. On October 5th, she was acquired by a dere- as a derelict, which is my new favorite way to describe someone who's broken down. I'm derelict. <laughs> Mood. <laughs> Alexander B- McBean of Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Such great names in this. Um, and re-intern sold it to a local businessman who sold it again to uh, Richard W. Haynes, an American mariner from New York. He paid, ready for this, you can probably not buy a boat, a ship. This is a ship uh, for this much.
0: I could probably afford that, especially if it was a ghost ship.
6: Yeah, right? Just because. And then spent about $9,000 restoring it. Mm
0: -mm, Nope, lost me.
6: We both would have a broken boat. So what does Haynes do but name himself Captain and register with the Customs in New York in 1868? And renamed her Mary Celeste.
0: So the artist formerly, the boat formerly known as Amazon.
6: Yeah, is now Mary Celeste.
0: Should have kept the name Amazon. Good branding. I
6: know. And it's not, sadly, wrong coast too. Haynes had a little financial problems. At $9,000 restoring it probably set him over. In October of 1869, the ship was seized by Haynes creditors. And was sold to a New York consortium headed by James H. Winchester. I'm going to assume related to Sarah
0: Winchester. When you said that, everything just hit me. Like the scene in V for Vendetta where all the dominoes fall. And I'm like, oh my gosh, everything spooky from the Victorian era is connected. (laughs) This is like the Marvel cinematic universe of scary ghost mysteries. Right. But probably not related. Probably not really.
6: Um, We have no records for like three years of Mary's trading activities, but I'm assuming she got around. And then again, before our spookiness, uh, early in 1872, the ship underwent a major refit costing $10,000 to enlarge her considerably. Just because ships are referred to as hers, it sounds really creepy. Yeah, there's there's (laughs) a lot
0: to unpack here, gender studies-wise, but that's another podcast.
6: We'll get Lindsay from 33% Pulp on that real quick. So by October, consortium with Winchester still involved and a new ship captain also in the consortium, Benjamin Spooner Briggs.
0: The names. I know.
6: He is such a critical person because he's basically what kind of caused the mystery let's figure out who he is also have a picture to send you because uh boy looked interesting great beard he has no mustache as part of this beard
0: okay let's just see chin beard (laughs) i'm so excited i'm pulling it up keep going
6: so he was born in wareham probably not saying that right massachusetts in april of 1835 and he is one of five sons of ship captain Nathan Briggs. He has,
0: They're... he has no top lip; it's just <laughs> low lip beard. It's yeah, it's yes. He's a, he almost looks very Abraham Lincolny. I yeah, definitely Abraham Lincolny. But you know what? Um, Actually, he's got the type of lips that. You know how whenever you were, like, being silly and, like, you took the advertisement of, like, I don't know, like, the cover of Vogue or, like, your your mom's magazines and you cut out their mouth and put your mouth in it and made it, like, say stupid stuff? Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just crazy. That's what it looks like. It looks like someone yeah. with, like, a magazine over and, like, their real mouth under it. It's, it's, actually I actually have to close this out. It's kind of creeping me out. <laughs> Courtney, keep going.
6: Um. Uh, so all so of his brothers, all but one went to sea, and two became captains, inclu- including including uh, Benjamin Briggs. Uh, and he, Benjamin, in October eighteen seventy two, took command of the Mary Celeste for her first voyage, following her extensive New York refit. Again, sounds wrong. To take her to Genoa, Italy, and he was bringing his wife and infant daughter with him which, if you know how men feel about, sailors feel about women aboard, um, not a good omen. Oh, that's bad luck,
0: right? Because
6: of misogyny. Mm -hmm. And left his school-aged son at home with his grandmother. So that's one lucky small child. And Briggs actually personally picked his crew for this journey with very, very uh, good care. The first mate, Albert G. Richardson, was married to the niece of Winchester and had experienced sailing under Briggs before. The second mate, Andrew Gilling, uh, who's about 25, who's Danish but born in New York. Sounds about right. The steward, newer, newly married Edward William Head, recommended personally by Winchester. So really it's just a giant friends of the upper echelons of the boat. And then the four general seamen were all journal- Germans, um, not gerbils, from the, <laughs> Russian Islands, um, and everyone was really happy with the crew. So they don't—they're like, it, everything seems to be good. But as you know, things are not going to go well. On October twentieth, seventeen or eighteen, seventy-two, Briggs arrives in New York, uh, on the East River to supervise loading of the ship's cargo. This is significant. 1701 barrels of poisonous denatured alcohol basically they made it undrinkable some chemical or something I don't
0: you could so use alcohol for chemistry things and not drinky things got it
6: yeah for a week later Briggs's wife and daughter join Briggs writes home to his mother our vessel is beautiful is uh, in beautiful trim and I hope we shall have a fine passage
0: Come oh, molly you and danger girl
6: on tuesday november 5th the mary celeste left pier 50 and it U- moved into new york harbor but the weather was uncertain so briggs is like i'm gonna hold a minute and he anchors off of staten island on november 7th as the weather improved the mary celeste set out and went into the atlantic during the time they were waiting for the weather to improve they were uh next to another brigantine the king Canadian Delgratia, who was getting petroleum cargo set again for Gen- Genoa, and they were going to follow eight days after the Mary Celeste on the same route. So there's basically two ships chugging along one ahead of the other. Well, why mention Delgratia? They reached uh, a position midway between the Azores and, and the coast of Portugal, so closer to the uh, Portugal than the middle of the ocean- Atlantic Ocean. About 1 p.m. on Wednesday, December 5th, 1872. And the captain, Captain Morehouse, came on deck as his he- helmsman reported a vessel about six miles in the distance, heading unsteadily towards them. So basically, you know, got the telescope out and was like, uh...
0: There's like a boat that's like on a collision course, essentially. Yeah. More or less.
6: More or less. And normally there's always people watching, so this shouldn't happen. Because the ship was moving erratically, and her sails were all funky and everything. Captain Morehouse is like, uh, something's not right. We should get close to them and figure it out. Well, when they get close, nobody's on deck. There's no response to any signals that they're trying to send out. So he sent Divo and his second mate, John Wright, on the boat to investigate. Uh, what boat is this, you may ask? The Mary Celeste. And They head aboard, and the ship is completely deserted. There's no one aboard. Basically, the sails damaged, poor condition. Main hatch was, uh, cover was secure, which is good to know. Like, it doesn't seem like they've been attacked. Some other hatches were open. The ship's single lifeboat, which, why only one, was missing. And uh, the ship's compass was also missing. There was about three and a half feet of water in the hold, which is a decent amount of water, but wasn't stopping the ship basically from floating. They basically find all uh, some tools on the deck. The last date in the log was uh, 8 a.m. November 25th, nine days earlier. So they basically can figure out, hey, you got abandoned nine days ago. And the position recorded was off of Santa Maria Island in the Azores, nearly... uh, 400 nautical miles or 740 kilometers from where the Del Gratia encountered her. Everything seems pretty, you know, in place in the cabins, Briggs's cabin. Things were scattered about, but the ship's papers were missing, including with uh, the captain's navigational instruments. Significantly, if if they fled, they're going to take those instruments with them so they can find somewhere, get to shore. Also, interestingly... The galley's equipment was stowed away. There's no food under preparation, so they weren't mid, pre- like getting for a meal, and just like all had to like leave. So they obviously knew something was happening. And so when they get back aboard, um, Del gratia Morehouse decides we're gonna tow it back Gibraltar, and we'll get the salvage, pri- like prize, because if you salvage a boat in this period, you get money from the insurance company because you saved them. Because
4: mm-hmm.
6: then they can resell it and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So, the Delgado's crew is divided between the two vessels, and they reach Gibraltar on December 12th, 1872. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiralty Court, because remember, Gibraltar is owned by Britain, uh, and they're going to do some salvage hearings. The salvage hearings begin December 12th, so a couple days later, under... Sir James Cochrane Chief Justice of Gibraltar again names in this and conducted by Frederick Soliflood the Attorney General of Gibraltar and Flood was described by a historian of the Mary Celeste Affair as a man whose arrogance and pompaticity were inversely proportional to his IQ as, and as the sort of man who once he had made up his mind about something could not be shifted so basically he's a pompish. Three months later, there is no evidence of foul play and the salvagers receive payment, but only one sixth of the 46,000 of the insurance because they couldn't prove that the Delgrati crew didn't either work with the Mary Celeste crew or had killed them. Yeah.
0: Whoa. Okay. So there might've been like, so, so let me get this right. So they get on the ship, no one's there. Mm-hmm. Um, is the alcohol the alcohol is still intact? yeah yeah all the car pretty much most of like there's a little bit
6: of the cargo gone and they couldn't really account for it but most like pretty much everything's intact like the things that are missing are more like personal items like navigational tools that weren't owned by the company so and so, the ship's just floating
0: around. So the conclusion made by this guy who was making these claims um, for the mm. insurance was that they were uh, the people who found the ship and salvaged it were in cahoots with the people who drove the ship, the, essentially.
6: Yeah, he felt like it
0: was all this, like, conspiracy. Then where are the bodies of the people on that ship?
6: They never found them.
0: Yeah, that's why it's so creepy. What the hell happened? So let's go through the theories. Okay.
6: Theory number one, craze mutiny. I thought
0: you were going to say craze mutants. I was like, this is a new one. I haven't heard this one.
6: (laughs) Yeah. That would be great. They all just get mutated by the alcohol. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, Because there were strange marks that could have been caused by an axe and like they thought they found some blood when looking through. And this is because flood like really was focusing on members of the crew had gotten violently drunk off the ship's cargo of al- alcohol and then massacred everyone else before departing on the soul
0: But they couldn't have drank it.
6: Yeah, it would have made you sick.
0: Yeah. Which is dumb.
6: Um they but later they figured out that the bloodstains weren't blood stains and um the in- alcohol was industrial grade stuff that wasn't fit for drinking.
0: It was rust, right? It wasn't blood. It yeah. Was blood. Okay, I remember that.
6: Yeah. Uh second Criminal conspiracy, a rogue gallery of suspects have been implicated in the case um, of Mary Celeste over the years. You know, North African pirates, um, but ships not looted, so...
0: Not likely. The
6: crew, yeah, the crew of the Del Gradi, because they discovered the empty um, Mary Celeste, maybe they attacked everyone and pretended they found her adrift to get the money from the salvage. Uh, also, <laughs> it's my favorite one, like conspiracy... Um, Briggs and his family fake their death to claim salvage money through a co-conspirator. So we're gonna pretend everyone's dead, and set this boat adrift to get the salvage money
0: and fake their deaths was... essentially. But they're not seen again, so it doesn't.
6: <sighs> well, in this period, you could probably disappear.
0: That's true.
6: That is true. There's no, there's no uh, Instagram. So <laughs> my my other favorite one: alien abduction, because you know, aliens. Because they the crew was like so suddenly gone, the ship's in such pristine condition, and there's like the missing lifeboat, but everyone's like, it doesn't really make sense. Well, so like aliens
0: bring people back usually. What if
6: they brought them back, but the ship wasn't there?
0: What if they brought them back into a different timeline? Like they just end up in like two thousand eighteen on like some beach somewhere. It could be a plot to something. Ooh, that sounds like a good i'm pretty good sure that interest- there, there's shades of that in a lot of tv right now though um yeah what do you think happened like what yeah. is the most conclusive answer that you think
6: i have two more okay. and then i'll tell you which one it was <laughs> you're right um some people think it was the sea itself because the sea's a <laughs> um and be- you know maybe there was a pop-up storm that kind of like freaked them all out or like a water spout
0: oh i thought you said and a they... pop-up storm and i was like well that brings you back to the instagram thing
6: <laughs> yeah the other one is uh an explosion of alcohol because the fumes escaped and basically caused an explosion and that they would maybe have tried to like they feared the ship was going to explode so they get out in the the lifeboat and they grab some stuff but the rope it's free and they can't pull themselves back on the boat and so it just ends up floating off into eternity
0: hmm. what do you think i i don't think i've ever come to a conclusion on the mary celeste mystery the most logical explanation is it was they got freaked out by the alcohol fumes and tried to trowel behind the boat and they got disconnected and like were screwed but i, st- I mean it's a big ocean probably wouldn't find the bodies I don't yeah. know. This is all the one that creeps me out. It's just it's one of those things it's like you you get evidence, it's like you present a theory, but then it's like, but that doesn't explain this thing. Then what explains this thing? So it's you keep going down the line, but there's always that one piece of the puzzle that doesn't quite fit.
6: Oh no, they explained it. They figured it out.
0: <laughs> Never you can't mind. See- you
6: can't see it. Maxwell just got so close. He's like, wait, what?
0: <laughs> okay, well, this is what I'm here for. How did it, what happened?
6: So uh, Dr. Andrea Sella for the University College of London Chemistry built a replica holds of the Mary Celeste Great Craft Project. Um, using butane gas, he simulated the explosion by causing the al- alcohol leaking from the ship's cargo. Instead of uh wooden barrels, though he used cubes of paper, setting a light to the gas caused one huge blast which sent a flame a ball flame upwards. You think, oh, the paper cubes would be burned and blackened or the r- the replica would hold damage. neither happened and This is a quote from Dr. Sella. What we created was a pressure wave type of explosion. There was a spectacular a spectacular wave of flame, but behind it was relatively cool air. No suit was left behind, and there was no burning or scorching. Given all the facts we have, this replicates the conditions aboard the Mary Celeste. The explosion could have been enough to blow open the hatches, and that would be completely terrifying for everyone aboard. Such a massive explosion that could have been triggered by a spark caused by two loose barrels rubbing together, or a careless crewman with a pipe in his mouth opened a hatch to ventilate the hold during a long crossing across the ocean. Records show that 300 gallons of alcohol had leaked, more than enough to create a terrifying explosion
0: so they saw the flames got freaked out and then got lost Got Let's off see. The... Ah, so that's it we just saw the mystery of the mary celeste
6: we did
0: all right courtney thank you so much for that and uh where can we find you uh
6: you can find me in washington um <laughs>
0: okay not physically
6: <laughs> podcasty yeah, um... Podcasting at the Cult of Domesticity on Instagram, the Domestic Podcast on Twitter and Facebook, and on all podcatchers at the Cult of Domesticity with a really cool murdery uh, style logo.
0: So, okay, this is what I was going to tell you. Hey, hey, Courtney, why yeah. is Mary Celeste the worst drag queen? Why? Because she vanishes before she can complete her set. The concept of the vampire has existed for centuries, throughout many cultures. While it's eerie enough to think that so many different civilizations have, at one point in history, come to the general consensus that the dead can come back, rarely do we consider that all of these legends had to originate from one primary source. Mels and Acadia from Strangeful Things are about to take us into the tundra of Sweden, where a recent archaeological survey has come upon something that is both historically significant and deeply disturbing. All right. Welcome back, kittens, to another horror entry in this night of terror. I'm very enthusiastic about that. Uh, I've got Melz and Acadia from Strangeful Things here to tell us another chilling historical factoid. Guys. Hello. I'm. S-
3: Hello. I'm
0: so excited. I've never been part of a compilation before. I know this is my yes. tree house of terror. I'm very excited about it. This is.
3: I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah.
7: And my favorite part about it is that I am slowly glomming you into things because um, I want you to tell us the beginning, or at least introduce our story. And I worked right. Honestly, my favorite part of this, Max, is that I thought of, I, I came up with something that you didn't already know about. That that. <laughs> I kind of just feasted on
0: that in my brain for like two weeks. Well, let me do my best here. Right. I'll do my best Vincent Price voice. <laughs> uh, or, my, or I guess Aaron Mankey would be more a uh, shout-out to Lore. Um, not that they okay. need a shout-out. They're very popular. <laughs> One of the first things I said to you on Twitter was that you
7: reminded me of Lore.
0: Thank you. They somehow seem to differentiate between humans and animals but also animals in different categories. There are not any close parallels. We are also working on situating the site in the local and the regional archaeological context. I'm Maxwell, and this is Strangeful Things. <laughs> that's just outstanding. Because
7: the Strange Will Things curse makes anyone who does a cold open a permanent part of the show.
0: So good going, sucker! Oh, no. This, hey. is, what is, this is like my weird Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft curse that I've fallen into. Damn straight. Like, unintentionally. This is my monkey's paw. Mm-hmm. Which was not written hey, by either I of those people. I just
3: answered. Yeah, I just answered a Craigslist ad, so. Well,
7: the curse is Flexible. And seriously, we're thrilled to be here, Max, because Relic is a super classy show, and we kind of appreciate this opportunity to drag you into the mud with us.
0: Don't drag me to hell. All right. Have you ever been to Sweden? No. I would love to go, mostly because uh, of two things. Uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is awesome. Um, and also my dentist, who I surprisingly really like, is from Sweden. And she's a doll and always talks about it. So, wow. And, yeah, and she makes me actually enjoy going to the dentist's office. And currently, clearly, those people are doing something right with the population. Wow. That's. Yeah. I've never heard anybody say that before. Well, all right then. I find out going to the dentist is relaxing, but that's neither here nor there. Wow. Yes. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I need to get that Dennis information. Yeah, I know, right?
0: (laughs)
7: Well, the fact that you have not been to Sweden to this point means that you have been safe from snow vampires, which is what this story is completely
0: about. Okay. Lay it on me. Mm
3: -hmm. All right. Well, so snow vampires are just a theory, and it's a theory only supported by you constantly saying it. Damn right. So how about... So how about we stick to some facts? Right. The quote Max read from Frederick Hogren of the Cultural Heritage Foundation, who led an archaeological project by the mantala River in southern Sweden. Work being done in 2009 on a railway line in the area uh, actually revealed some artifacts in the bottom of what had been a shallow lake some 8,000 years ago, I think. Wow. So initial investigations (laughs) determined that the site... (laughs) Uh, dubbed Cannel Jordan. That's. I messed that up. No, it's, it's, it's
7: Canal
0: Jordan. It's like okay, Air sorry. Jordan. She's probably reading something Swedish. Let's give her a wine berth. Yeah, yeah, right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, give me a line. All right. Dubbed Cannel Jordan was a Stone Age settlement and sacred meeting spot for ancient Swedes.
7: Ancient hot Swedes.
3: Well, Stone Age Alex Skarsgård does sound pretty good to me. But anyway, in 2011, Halgren started an official project at the site, and he found some interesting items. Slight traces of a fire, um, an ornate pickaxe made out of an antler, and some bone points embedded with flint, some animal remains that they think may have had some symbolic value.
7: So now... To me, absolutely zero of those things are interesting in the context of this story. Like, if somebody found a, a, I don't know, a pickaxe, an antler pickaxe in, like, a second grader's lunchbox or being carried by a vulture, that, to me, would be interesting. But in regular archaeology, it just seems like it happens all the time. And Max, since you do this all the time, I would assume that you just find stuff like that, like, in your couch and stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, there's tons of skulls under my couch, but red for a different reason than, you know, ancient <laughs> uh-huh. ancestors. Um, uh, I mean, ice is a great preserver. We've taken so many mummies and, like, preserved bodies out of ice and glaciers all over the world. It's it's a known thing. Um, but I haven't heard it in Sweden yet. So um, my interest is piqued, but I am waiting for the other shoe uh, to drop oh. or... This is like a or centipede cape. A centipede mm-hmm. this is like a human centipede.
7: Is well, <laughs> I mean, maybe for the Patreon, but uh... oh no.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
7: so now, this is the good part of the story because in addition to all that stuff that careless blonde Stone Age supermodels, which is what I picture them all as, left laying around, <laughs> there were signs that the location, which they carbon dated. Back to about 8,000 years, which is where we got that from earlier, that Mel's mentioned. It looked like it was a significant ritual ground for the inhabitants. And their evidence for that was tons of bones.
3: Right. That's legit. They found animal bones. Let's see. Human bones. Tools made out of bones. But the main thing that they found were skulls. Skulls. And skulls laid out in a pattern in which has been determined to be a mass grave of sorts.
0: A mass grave of snow vampires, Max. You can't see me. I'm shaking my head because whenever I hear skulls laid out in a pattern, I'm like, oh, no, here we go. Nah. (laughs) That shoe just dropped.
3: (laughs) Well, a possible snow vampires. But there were ten skulls found in total. Let's see. There were nine adults and one infant. And they were all missing the jawbones, which I admit makes skulls much cooler. And the reason that Acadia doesn't stop talking about snow vampires and the reason that we wanted to tell you the story is that some of them had been mounted on stakes.
0: Seriously. Oh. So the corpse... Wait. So just to locate myself here, were, was it believed that the corpses were put on stakes after they were dead or was it, like, a form of um, uh, impalement, like, curiously enough, Vlad Tepish did to his victims
7: this, and outcontents? They, they found him, and, like, that whole thing about the jawbones being gone just makes skulls so much easier to sit on stuff, and they don't, like, fall over and whatever. But <laughs> the st- the stakes were stuck up into the openings in the bottom of the skulls. So... One, they found one of the sticks completely intact, and one of them had been broken in half. And they had evidence from some of the other skulls that they had also had been staked, but they didn't have the stakes themselves. Now, the weirdest, and I'm going to get to your question because that's sort of central to the whole mystery thing. The weirdest, coolest part of this is that this is the only known instance of mounting skulls on stakes that's ever been found from the entire Mesolithic era. Like, the whole era. And
0: Oh. Well...
7: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So...
0: Yeah. So, basically, is this, and this might just be a leap of logic, is this postulating... In my very National Enquirer kind of mindset right now, that maybe there was like a Neanderthal, some sort of like vampiric common ancestor that uh, early man was trying to stave off because it kept coming for them.
7: Yes, you have basically made my snow vampire theory sound way smarter than I did. So I'm going to give you a footnote in my paper that I'm going to publish. Because.
0: I well thank you and i would I would pay good money to see um a crossover of the quest for fire the eighties movie about <gasps> early man looking for fire and thirty days of night like this is actually ah. like Hollywood should get on this because prehistoric vampires very much in the same way that um uh uh bone tomahawk did a lot for like western and like crazy like creepy cannibal movies as like a good genre blend. Yes. I would watch cavemen fighting vampires. Yes. That you actually just I would too. <laughs> you just knocked my movie that I want to have
7: made that was always my top one right out of my head. Now mine was number 2. Mine was I wanted the the people from the strangers to go to the home alone house. <laughs> that's definitely a crossover can you imagine they're like a being all spooky and then they grab the doorknob but it's super hot like i just i want that to happen (laughs) or
3: they come in and just get hit just like clobbered in the head with with a a can can. of paint
0: (laughs) so so tell me more about like the like the evidence presented here and like other theories surrounding this discovery
7: what they it, usually mounted skulls were in, in historically. They're usually done by colonial dickheads displaying the skulls of murdered natives. There have been some instances of indigenous people using skulls in burial rituals and trophy displays, but the the best that they've come up with so far. Mel, I think you have the the overview of what they think this may have been.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the researchers suspect the skulls could have possibly been used for secondary burial rites in which the deceased individuals were exhumed after their bodies had decomposed and reinterred. Um, and it's a tradition that had been found to have been practiced in at least one other Swedish Mesolithic site um, so due to the presence of, like, slight traces of fire at the Metala site, researchers believe that the skulls may have been mounted on stakes and then thrust into a bed of embers during a ritual.
7: Okay, so now stop and picture that in your head for a minute.
0: How right. totally badass that would look. It looks like the yeah. cover of, like, a heavy metal album. Right? Like, exactly. Ghost, <laughs> Ghost's next album is going to have that cover artwork of just, like, Roasting skulls as if they were marshmallows for s'mores
7: <laughs> that would also exactly. i mean that might explain if they if they did have them in the fire that might explain why they didn't uh, although they never they didn't specifically say that that there was any charring on the skulls but it would explain why some of the the steaks didn't make it if they burned up true
3: true Well, another possible hypothesis for the location of the skulls is that they belong to enemies killed in battle, which the victors, you know, then put the heads on the stakes or the skulls on the stakes and carried home from the battlefield as trophies.
7: I get where they're going with that, but I don't see the practical application. Like, so let's say the three of us decided to go attack, I don't know, the evil village over the hill. Number one... If we cut off their heads and stuck them on sticks, then they're saying that we thought they were so cool that we left them around till they eventually turned into skulls? That doesn't seem likely, because I think other people in the camp would be like, yeah, you killed that other tribe, like, I don't know, three years ago, dude. Let it go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they wouldn't have just, I don't know, I don't even know how you would, like, turn a head into a skull, like, on the quick. That doesn't seem like something that could even happen.
0: Without, like, severe exposure. Exactly. Especially in that climate, if we're to presume it was just as, if not colder back then. I mean, corpses don't decay as fast. That's the reason we find, like, mummies so well-preserved in cold climates Mm -hmm. and in glaciers. So, yeah, something deliberate had to have been done there. Yeah.
7: And I know the answer.
0: Oh, do you? Because you were there?
7: Yep. Well, no, it's it's research combined with making shit up. But science doesn't want to face the real truth. I mean, they, they have run some tests. They found out that because of uh, abundance of nitrogen and carbon isotopes, they found out that the owners of said skulls ate a lot of fish, which doesn't seem like a huge breakthrough considering it was Sweden. But, you know, they can't explain the stakes and I can. And the answer is Snow Vampires. Now, Mel's, don't hate on me for giving you my expanded... Because I've been talking to her about Snow Vampires for like a while, because I know it's it's kind of... Yeah. She's probably sick of me talking about it. But, I'll give you the rundown. (laughs) There's... Snow vampires are sort of like regular vampires, but because they live in snowy areas, they have adapted differently. See, regular hot vampires from, like, Florida, they're laid out essentially like regular humans, which is why they need to be staked through the heart. But snow vampires became vampires when they were wearing heavy-ass clothes. So they're super hard to stake because I assume, I mean, I don't know. I don't know much about vampires, but I assume they don't change their clothes a lot. So, if you were a snow vampire, you would have been wearing like a bunch of skins and thermal undershirts and stuff like that, and that would be impossible to get a stake through.
0: All right, yeah. everybody. Well, Silence equals ascent. <laughs> I see no I, I see no flaw in your theory.
7: Damn right. Now, the other part of it, and this is this is showing how thorough my research is. It's a double edged sword. Because it's cold, snow vampires have extremity problems that hot vampires don't have. So they can, like, get their fingers chopped off and that kind of thing. And they can also get staked through the head instead of the heart. Fair. Well,
3: now that makes less sense than it did when you first explained it to me, which seems impossible. But, well... (laughs) For you.
7: I may have expanded on it a little bit since the last time I talked to you about it. The... And anyway, you're a shill for big science. The fact is, snow vampires are terrifying, and they were arranged in the way that they were arranged because the chief of the village, whose name I assume was Svarg, was keeping him safe, (laughs) and he needed to prove to his people that he knew what was up regarding them, which brings us to the, and this is legit creepy, the last little bit of shoe to drop in this story.
0: So, like, right. the, the, the heel or the sole? Yes. Or, or the eyelet.
7: Oh. Well, I guess you can decide how significant a piece of the shoe it is. Mel's?
3: Yeah, so, it's pretty interesting. One of the skulls was not like the other. So, it's kind of like that, which one of these it's is not, not, not like, like the, the other Yeah, <laughs> see? Uh, It had someone else's temporal bone stuffed inside of it. Oh. So scientists are trying to find out if the two people were related or if any of the...
7: Snow vampires.
3: Okay. All right. Uh, I was going to go with people were related, but the results didn't come back yet. So for now, the mystery of Canal Jordan by the Matala River remains intact.
7: So, huh. I didn't even know, I assumed that the temporal bone was, like, where your temple was, which reminded me of a kid in high school that thought his temple was between his eyes. But, regardless, <laughs> we have ritual skulls, staked, never seen in that era before, and somebody went out of their way to put somebody el- a piece of somebody else's head into a lady's head. All found in the bottom of a lake. So...
0: I, I don't like it. <laughs> but that but then again i do like it because yeah it's cliche, exactly right and that's why we're here wow <laughs> um final thoughts on snow vampires it, and what is so if someone was to look this up what would like the, they're gonna the look go- for motala skulls is
7: the way that it's most commonly referred okay. and it's strange because it, they it the original dig and and you know way more about archaeology than than we do max but It seems like if they they found all this stuff in 2011, that the DNA... I mean, I know the lab is always backed up on SVU, but you would think (laughs) that the 8,000-year-old head would get bumped to the front of the line so they could figure out something by now. But maybe they don't have enough, I don't know, DNA juice to get there. There's, I mean, it's
0: not like there's a, an abundance of crimes in Sweden, one exactly. of the most peaceful it's, countries on the it's planet. A,
7: it's a gorgeous utopia. That's what it is.
0: So, <laughs> oh, they have problems, too. But yeah, right. For the most part, co- comparatively to certain dumpster fires of, in the it Western best. world, yes. And apparently it's a hard hard economy for dentists.
7: They need to come to America to, to make their fortune. <laughs> Which,
3: by the way, I still need that information. Yeah, right. So... If you're uh, well, ever in
2: Connecticut.
3: Okay. <laughs> Next time, I, I might just make a special visit there just to get my teeth examined by the Swedish uh, dentist. So, um, But one thing that I found interesting about the Metala skulls was when they found this, you know, temporal bone inside of this skull, a lot of the questions surrounding it was, well, I mean what was it, what, if any, is there a relation to this temporal bone that was found inside of this skull? Like, was this the temporal bone of someone close to the person that they obviously staked and, uh, you know, then put into the fire? Um, like for one crazy example, was it you know, a mom perhaps, and it might've been her infant, uh, you know, cause some things can be cruel back then, obviously. And they were not scared to make a point.
0: No pun know, intended. About who
3: there. Yeah. So, uh, that was one thing that really stuck out to me was, I mean, whose temporal bone was this?
0: Yeah. And,
3: and yeah. if there was, there a relation to the skull they found it in, or was this just another, kind of weird freaky scare tactic where it's like I will take another part of a skull and I will stuff it into a skull that we are sacrificing and I will show you how evil I really am. I just it's-
7: pictured a caveman like dad
0: going, "I will take out your skull and put another skull in it if you don't quit screwing around."
3: Exactly. It's I almost mean-
0: <laughs> like it's almost like a macabre turducken.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, exactly. The, the
0: thing that creeps me
7: about, and they found a bunch of, you know, they found, like Mel's mentioned, they found all those other bones and everything. But they didn't find the whole skeletons. Like, they were, these these skulls were, like, for special. And that's the part that bugs me about it, because they had to go way out of their way to go, well, time to go get the skull from wherever we get them from. Oops, time to get that other little piece of skull and put it you know what i mean like it's just Mm -hmm. it's such a long walk for them to get to where they ended up it creeps me out
0: right yeah right and it's like it's it's kind of evocative of like the go gobekli tepe kind Mm -hmm. of stuff where it's like all of this ceremony and all of this effort and by extension stonehenge all of this stuff and there's not enough evidence for us to draw solid conclusions on why people went out of their way to do these things that seem so incomprehensible. But you also have to remember how many years between our modern society and just our way of thinking on our brains and everything there is between us now and then. So, you know, leaps of logic, it's... It's hard to wrap your head around it because I said wrap your skull around it um, (laughs) because people were I I like that (laughs) people were thinking their brains were entire almost entirely different than ours. So things that made sense to them would seem unfathomable for us. Um, Yeah. uh, Any final thoughts on Snow Vampires? Well, we do some plug in. Technically,
7: I, my snow vampire theory has a 50-50 chance right now, so I'm pretty excited
0: about that. Mels, do you have a child <laughs> ghost? Oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed. Um, Are you embarrassed you about, it about your child ghost? Well,
3: the, the tiny human ghost made it into a locked room, and I don't want to tell you how he's able to do that at uh, two years old currently. So uh, thank goodness for editing. Uh, so...
0: Oh no, we're not <laughs> editing it. Children, are... <laughs> <laughs> cute kids are always a sell. To, well, from my,
3: this is a creepy kid. Yeah, I know, so do I don't... Even Except better. Maybe, it, He's maybe a... it actually lends to it. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. But, uh...
7: I think. Um, yeah. For me, Max, the fact that you challenged me to do something specifically archaeological was fun because usually on Strangeful. You know, we we always try to find stories that are I mean, everybody does the big ones, but we also try to find things that aren't necessarily stuff that everybody's heard of. So I'm legitimately thrilled that that we got to tell you a story that you hadn't heard and that I got to do one where we don't specifically know who the horrible murderer was because it was some Mesolithic handsome Swede.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, we obviously know that the person was handsome. I mean, there's no doubt about that. There's not one person that I can imagine off the top of my head that I know to be Swedish that is not attractive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what adds to the sense of just it being a little... Well, not a little. It's super creepy to me because it's like you have this... I don't want to say colony, but you have this like group of people that are seemingly just they seem like they're supposed to be peaceful and and they're beautiful and they're Nordic, you know, and they they are just picture perfect. I mean, look at the scars guard. Obviously, I mentioned them earlier, (laughs) but to then take it a step further and realize that they were savage beasts.
7: (laughs) It's even sexier. Yeah, right.
3: <laughs> it's it's actually a little bit more of a turn on, be honest with you. But yeah, to just to know that they were doing these types of things and whether it was out of showmanship of, hey, I'm the boss and I run this, you know, I run this show and this is how I'm going to get everybody to fall in line. I'm going to show you that I will skin you and 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 have nothing but your skull left and then i will impale it and then i will burn it in a fire for you Mm -hmm. and then later on people like us will dig it up and then we will realize that you weren't just doing that you were also playing some type of like uh weird doctor type experimental thing where you're like i'm just gonna shove another piece of the skull in here and see what it looks like and does it burn different (laughs) is the effect different is it scarier or is it more of an art form like hi look what i just made this beautiful skull made out of different other people's parts
0: freaking (laughs) head it's like skeletal decoupage (laughs) Um, exactly all right so Uh, thank you so much for being on please tell me where people can find you They
7: can find us at strangefulthings.com if they want to hear episodes about things sort of like this, but less... I don't want to say less classy. No, definitely less classy. But hopefully um, (laughs) just as entertaining. Also, we are doing a lot of stuff at superficialgallery.com, including, Max, something that I didn't get to tell you about before, but I'm super excited about. We now make movies. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people in the indie horror movie scene that can't get funding. And since one of our squad has all the studio stuff and editing capabilities and actors and makeup and everything like that, we are actually making people's movies for them. So go to superficialgallery.com if you've got a movie you want to make
0: and we can start talking about it. I might just take you up on that offer. Mm-hmm. We could do the first. We Ooh, could do the first live-action like relic narrative. That's not
7: even joking, because the other yeah, the other piece of be it, awesome. The other piece of it is, um, we are very conscious of the fact that um, straight white guys get like ninety five percent of the funding. So we are sort of making us the opposite of that. So, okay. We I like are it. trying to, we're definitely trying to give people a voice that don't have one right now. And our first
0: movie comes out next month and I've taken up enough of your time. Well, I will definitely be plugging that later on in the show's lifespan. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming on and have a happy Halloween.
7: Thank you, sir. Happy
0: Halloween. Thank you, sir. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you have heard and don't want to be cursed, you can leave us a good rating or review an Apple podcast or wherever you listen to Relic. Next time, a beautiful stranger on a train, a mysterious bracelet, a disgraced archaeologist, and a deception in Mesopotamia. And yet, this is not the plot of an Agatha Christie novel, but a very real-life incident concerning another treasure which may or may not have ever existed. Have a happy Halloween, and the adventure continues.
3: We'll